Thank you for joining us through our study of the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. This morning, we will finish our study of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which covers chapters 28 through 30 in the Confession. In our examination of baptism last week, we proved from the scripture that the ordinance of baptism is only for believers. And there are three main reasons why baptism is only for believers. First, um, Jesus Christ explicitly commands for his apostles to make disciples and to baptize them. In Matthew 28, in the section of Christ's Great Commission, remember he told his apostles to go in all the world, make disciples, baptize them, and then to teach them everything that Christ has taught the apostles. And and we know the term disciples. We we know what that term means. We we don't have to jump through hoops to redefine disciples. We know that disciples are those who commit their ways to following the Lord. A disciple of Christ is someone who has made a profession of faith. They have heard the gospel. They they claim to believe the gospel, and then they commit their ways to following the Lord. And Jesus told his apostles that disciples, those who come to know Christ and commit their ways to following him, should be baptized. So Christ explicitly commands for believers to be baptized. Secondly, when you read the New Testament and you come to the parts of the New Testament where someone is baptized, there is actually a baptism formula that's documented. It, it, it's present. We can, we can see this formula. And last week, we examined the five household baptisms as examples. And in each of these household baptisms, the gospel was preached that gospel was believed, and the person who believed it was baptized. We see this in Cornelius' household, Lydia's, the Philippian jailer, Crispus in Acts chapter 18, and in Stephanus' household in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Even in the Apostle Paul's baptism in Acts chapter 9, this formula is documented. He believed the gospel that Jesus preached to him, and he was baptized. And so we see this baptism formula, preaching, believing, and baptism uh, throughout the New Testament. The last reason why baptism is for believers only is because of the meaning of baptism. According to Scripture, Baptism pictures our faith in the triune God. Jesus says to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Baptism pictures our death, burial, and resurrection with Christ. Baptism pictures our 
old nature being washed away and the putting on of Christ, our new nature. So, essentially, baptism pictures our union with Christ, our union with Christ through faith in Christ, our union with Christ and and his death, burial, and resurrection, and our union with Christ by putting on Christ, as the Apostle Paul says in Colossians. None of these things are associated with unbelievers. Do unbelievers have a union with Christ? No. Do unbelievers have their sin nature washed away? Absolutely not. Do unbelievers have faith in the triune God? No, not even close. Baptism is only for believers because of what the scripture pictures baptism meaning. But our paedo-baptist friends, they will insist that the infants of believers should be baptized. And their reasons for this is that they claim that there are infants in those households, uh, in the household baptisms that we looked at last week. Paedo-baptists will claim that infants were baptized because, you know, what, what first century home didn't have an infant in it, right? So they are implying that infants were in that household. Obviously, they're wrong because the scripture is clear on who was baptized, those that believed. They rejoiced in their salvation. They, they were happy to be baptized. They, were, they, they obtained the Holy Spirit when they came to faith. And so there are several reasons why Pado Baptist uh, claim that infants should be baptized. Uh, one of those reasons we're going to discuss today. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to Colossians chapter 2. Uh, according to Pado Baptist, uh, they believe that the new covenant baptism replaces the old covenant circumcision. And therefore, since infants were circumcised under the old covenant, then infants should be baptized under the new covenant. And they use Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 as their proof. So let's, let's look briefly at Colossians chapter 2 and let's examine whether or not Paul is actually teaching infant baptism. Is Paul referring to infant baptism? Is is Paul referring that uh, new covenant baptism replaces old covenant circumcision? Here's the text. We'll begin reading in verse 11 of Colossians chapter 2. In Christ... Also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, is that text teaching 
that new covenant baptism replaces old covenant circumcision and therefore infants should be baptized just like they were circumcised. Let's address it. In Colossians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is addressing several issues that have become a problem for the people of Colossae. Paul says in chapter 2, verse 1, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. And verse 4, Paul says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So we can see that Paul is about to address something that he wished he didn't have to. That this is very unfortunate that Paul has to address this issue at the church of Colossae and in the neighbor church in Laodicea. Well, what's the problem? Look at verse 8. Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So there's the problem in Colossae. The members of the church are being overwhelmed with certain doctrine that does not agree with what they have already been taught concerning Christ. Someone has brought a human tradition or a philosophy and empty deceit, false hope and false promises into the church. And some members of the Colossi church are believing it. And Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, by empty deceit. That you don't agree with human tradition. These things are not according to Christ, but they're, they're worldly, Paul says. And so if the problem is that the people of Colossae are being captive by human tradition, empty deceit, worldly things, worldly doctrines, what's, what's, what's to solve? How do you solve it? And Paul tells us. He says the solution to the problem is in verse 9. He says, For in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Right? You, you don't need anything else. Christ is a solution for everything. In Christ, the whole fullness of God dwells in him. And if you are united to him by faith, he's in you. And Christ is the head of all rule and authority. What is the solution for this false teaching in Colossae? Christ. Our union with Christ Christ having authority over us and no longer the world having authority over us. We're no longer held captive by the world. So why do we act like it? Christ is our authority. We're, we're united to him by faith. So everything that we need now comes to us through him. And so the solution to human traditions, worldliness, Worldly doctrine is to hold fast to Christ. The Colossians shouldn't seek anything outside of Christ because they have been set free 
from worldly doctrines. They've been set free from human traditions since they have been united to Christ by faith. And in verse 11 and 12, those two verses, Paul describes their union to Christ by faith. That's what verses 11 and 12 are describing. Paul says in verses 9 and 10, you shouldn't be held captive by worldly traditions, human doctrines, because of your union with Christ. And then in verses 11 and 12, Paul describes how that happened. What steps did God take in their life in order to rescue them from the world, pull them out of the world, and to unite them to his son? And Paul says, your circumcision and baptism. That's how God did it, by circumcision and baptism. But here's the key. Paul isn't talking about outward circumcision. Paul isn't talking about water baptism. No, he's talking about spiritual circumcision. He's talking about our spiritual baptism. Notice how Paul says that we are made complete in Christ by being circumcised with a circumcision without hands. He's not talking about the circumcision of the foreskin that happened in the Old Testament to all of Israel. No, he's talking about spiritual circumcision, the circumcision that's done on the heart. It is inward. It's done by the Holy Spirit. It's not done by a knife with a hand. It's not the physical body of flesh that's being done away with. No, in spiritual circumcision, the body of flesh that is being done away with is the sin nature. So in spiritual circumcision, the sinful flesh is cut away by the Spirit. And that new heart is born in its place. So yeah, spiritual circumcision is spiritual baptism. Because what happens in spiritual baptism? Isn't the old nature washed away and the new nature is born in its place? It's absolutely what happens in spiritual baptism. Titus chapter 3, verse 4, Paul says, But when the goodness of the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, Right? Not by anything outward, which would include circumcision, outward circumcision, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ. Our spiritual baptism took place on the heart when the Holy Spirit, by faith, washes away the old sin. And the new sin and the new nature is born in its place, hence the reference to being born again. So in order for a Christian to be born again, Paul says that the Holy Spirit must cut away our old flesh. And it's similar to what the Holy Spirit does in baptism on the heart, that the Holy Spirit washes and regenerates our old heart. He's not talking about water baptism. 
Paul's not talking about physical circumcision. He's not talking about the circumcision that all of Abraham's descendants participated in. No, in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, he's talking about the spiritual circumcision, spiritual baptism, the things that a believer undergoes in order for them to be born again. And Paul says that is the key to our union with Christ. We become united to Christ as the Holy Spirit cuts away our old nature, washes that old nature away, and that new nature is born in its place. Now that's a blow to paedo-baptist belief. Because if Paul is talking about physical circumcision, if Paul is talking about water baptism, then, then they have a point. Yeah, if we become united to Christ through physical circumcision and we become united to Christ through water baptism, then yeah, our infants should be baptized. Because under the old covenant, infants of Israel, they were circumcised at eight days old. When the Lord commanded Abraham to be circumcised, he was close to 100. He circumcised all the males in his household, in his clan, including his two sons, Ishmael, who was about 13, and Isaac, who was eight days old. But that circumcision with Abraham didn't correspond to spiritual circumcision. Not everyone who was physically circumcised were born again. Take Ishmael, for example. He was physically circumcised, but the Lord removed him from the covenant. You ask any Pado baptist you ask any Presbyterian Christian, and none of them will claim that Ishmael was a part of the kingdom, the people of God. They'll all say he was kicked out, but he was circumcised. I'm reading through 2 Kings right now in, in my private time. All those kings were circumcised. They were all descendants of Abraham. But most of them were not members of the church. King Ahab, one of the most wicked kings ever. He was circumcised, but he wasn't a member of the church. What about the Pharisees? They were certainly circumcised. They insisted on people to be circumcised. Anybody want to place a bet on their salvation? What about the Judaizers in the book of Galatians? They insisted on people to be circumcised. The Gentiles had to be circumcised according to these Judaizers. You think Paul thought they were saved, the Judaizers? No. My point is physical circumcision didn't equal spiritual things. It didn't. All those who were physically circumcised as infants still had to be born again by the Spirit. Physical circumcision and spiritual circumcision were not equal in operation. So in 2 Colossians, or Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, when the Apostle Paul is talking about circumcision and baptism, 
He's not talking about physical circumcision. He's not talking about water baptism. He's talking about spiritual circumcision. He's talking about spiritual baptism. The inward, not the outward. All right, let's let's move on to the Lord's Supper. The institution of the Lord's Supper uh, is described in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke chapter 22. Uh, and Paul addresses the Lord's Supper briefly, well, pretty good length, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. According to Scripture, after Jesus ate the Passover meal, he used the same elements that were used to the Passover meal for the Lord's Supper. He used the bread and he used the cup. In all four gospel accounts of the Lord's Supper, uh, Jesus used unleavened bread. He took the bread, he broke it, and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Therefore, the bread signifies Jesus offering up his body as a substitute for us. And then, according to Scripture, Jesus took the cup, which contained the fruit of the vine, which, according to tradition, would have been red wine. He gave thanks uh, in the same manner as he gave thanks for the bread. He passed the cup to his disciples and he said, this is the blood of the covenant. This is my blood of the covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And notice that Jesus said to his disciples to do this in remembrance of me, meaning the bread and the wine. And so Jesus sets up this supper as the one fellowship meal that the church should observe until Jesus eats and drinks with us in his father's kingdom. That's what he means by that. When he tells his disciples to do this in remembrance of me, and that he won't eat this and drink this again with us until his father's kingdom. He means that we should do this on earth until we get to heaven, and that final supper is taken with Jesus. There are several names that scripture uses to describe this meal. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 20, Paul calls it the Lord's Supper. Although it was called a supper, the time of the supper wasn't essential to the meaning or the practice. The time of day, on the, on the Lord's day, it didn't matter as long as it was done during worship and the church was present for it. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and 20, verse 7, and in verse 46, Luke calls it the breaking of bread. Now, there are places in the New Testament when the term breaking bread does refer to a regular meal, uh, a common meal. So you have to look at the context. For instance, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, Luke says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. That's the context of that breaking of bread. It's associated with the apostles' teaching, the fellowship of the church, and the prayers. But then in verse 46 of chapter 2 in Acts, Luke says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So in verse 42, 
Luke associates the breaking of bread with the teaching of the word, prayers, and the fellowship, obviously talking about a church service. But then in verse 46, Luke associates the breaking of bread with people fellowshipping in their homes, which is obviously referring to a common meal. So depending on the context, breaking of bread can refer to the Lord's Supper that takes place on the Lord's Day in the church worship, or breaking of bread can just mean a common meal that you have at home with other Christians. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 21, Paul refers to the Lord's Supper as the table of the Lord. And since Paul talks about the Lord's Supper as the table of the Lord, most churches, in fact, all the churches that I've, I've been a part of, either as a member or a pastor, most churches have a table in front of their pulpit where they set the bread and the wine on on the days that they're going to honor the Lord's Supper. After the death of the apostles, uh, the church fathers called the Lord's Supper communion. Well, why do they do that? Because of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, the cup of blessing which we bless is it not the communion of the blood of Christ. Uh, then after the church fathers, the early church began to call the Lord's Supper the Eucharist. In Greek, the term Eucharist means to give thanks. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24, Paul says that Jesus sat with his disciples and he gave thanks for the bread and for the cup. And so the Greek word for that is Eucharist. After the early church um, and after the church fathers, the church began to call the Lord's Supper the love feast. Uh, since believers gathered together in the bond of love as they worshiped the Lord, um, they called it the love feast. But because of the orgies that the pagans practiced, uh, that title didn't last very long in the church. Uh, the Romans started to use the term love feast as propaganda against the church, accusing the church of having those same kind of orgies. And then finally, the term that we're, com uh, that we're most uh, aware of is the term sacrament. Uh, the term sacrament means something sacred. Uh, the Lord's Supper is certainly sacred among Christians, but this term also has a negative connotation because of the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church uh, started to recognize other sacraments such as marriage, the healing of the sick, confession of sins, confirmation. And so the Reformed Church backed away from calling it a sacrament and the Reformed Baptists started to call it as an ordinance. And so those are the different names. Uh, the church called it the Eucharist, a sacrament, um, the table of the Lord, a communion, uh, different names for this one, one fellowship meal that the Christians celebrated inside the church on the Lord's day. What's the meaning of the Lord's Supper? What's, what's the purpose of the Lord's Supper? And to be honest, there are many, many meanings. There are many purposes for the Lord's Supper. And I don't, I don't have enough time and, and I don't even have enough education to list them all. But let's, let's give it a shot by listing a few meanings of the Lord's Supper. Number one, 
The Lord's Supper commemorates the sacrificial death of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a celebration of what Jesus did on the cross for us. Jesus says in Luke twenty two nineteen, do this in remembrance of me. According to scripture, the, the bread represents Jesus offering himself as a sacrifice. You notice that Jesus says, this is my body, which is broken for you. Well, technically, Jesus's body wasn't broken. Uh, remember at the cross, uh, his, his body was not broken. They, they pierced his body with a, with a spear. So when Jesus says, this is my body, which is broken for you, what he means by that is that this is my body, which is offered up in your place. Uh, it, I, will, I, will, I will take on the punishment. I will take on the wrath of God for your sin. So Christ is offering himself up as a sacrifice. And according to scripture, the cup represents the blood of Jesus's sacrifice. Jesus truly did die on the cross. So the Lord's Supper is a time for the people of God to look back at what Jesus did for them, to celebrate our redemption that Christ purchased on the cross. The second meaning of the Lord's Supper is that it's a proclamation. When we take the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming the good news of our salvation. When we take the Lord's Supper and we we talk about the bread and we talk about the wine, we know that these elements represent something greater than themselves. And so when we we take the Lord's Supper in our church, we are proclaiming what, what Jesus has done. We're proclaiming the gospel of our salvation. Third, the Lord's Supper symbolizes our unity, our love and fellowship in the kingdom of God. The scripture says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17, for we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Our Lord, the Lord's Supper is a, is a symbol of our unity together, something that we have in common. And that's why the Lord's Supper is only for believers. It's only for the disciples. We're the only ones that share and have this unity in the gospel and who will fellowship together in the kingdom of God. So the Lord's Supper symbolizes our unity, our love and fellowship and the kingdom of God. It symbolizes uh, the death, burial and resurrection of Christ, the forgiveness of our sins. It's a proclamation of the gospel. Many things that it symbolizes. The last thing that I want to discuss on the Lord's Supper is what kind of presence does Christ have during the meal? When we take the Lord's Supper on the Lord's day, is Jesus present with us? And if so, with what kind of presence is Christ there? Now, among the many different religions, uh, there are typically four views concerning Christ present in the Lord's Supper. The first view is the view of the Roman Catholic Church called transubstantiation. The Roman Catholic Church believes that the elements, the bread and the wine, actually become the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. That when the priest blesses the bread and the wine, those two elements actually turn into the body and blood of Jesus. 
They believe that when the priest lifts up those elements and bless them and says, this is my body, this is my blood, that a miracle occurs and the bread and the wine turn into the real body and the real blood of Jesus. That's transubstantiation. I'm not making this up. They really believe this. Obviously, this doctrine is unbiblical. It's even absurd. It's not just unbiblical, but it's even absurd. It disgraces the humanity of Christ. It dishonors his sacrifice. It robs him of his exalted state. Since Jesus is truly God and he's truly man, these two natures cannot be confused. And that means the human nature does not take on divine attributes. And the divine nature does not take on human attributes. So since Jesus is physically seated at the right hand of God, he can't be physically present anywhere else unless his humanity takes on divine attributes. And that can't happen. Let me repeat that again. In order for Jesus to be physically present with us during the Lord's Supper, his humanity would have to take on divine attributes. And that can't happen. They can't be confused, those two natures of Christ. So the Catholic view of the Lord's Supper actually rejects the true humanity of Jesus. They claim Jesus is physically here on earth with them as they take the Lord's Supper. All the Catholic churches believe that. How can he be in heaven unless he takes on divine attributes? And that's heresy. So the Catholic view of the Lord's Supper actually rejects the true humanity of Jesus. They they don't believe he's truly human. If you get to the technical definitions and terms of what they believe, Transubstantiation denies the humanity of Jesus. So we reject Rome's unbiblical and even absurd view of the Lord's Supper. They they literally worship a different Jesus. The second view of Christ's presence in the Lord's Supper is the Lutheran view. This view is called consubstantiation. Martin Luther, the father of Lutheranism, rejected transubstantiation, and he replaced it with his own view called consubstantiation. According to this view, although the elements do not turn into the literal physical body and blood of a Lord, there's still a miracle that takes place. It's unexplained. No one knows exactly what happens, but they believe the real whole body of Jesus is present somehow. I am Really good friends with a Lutheran pastor here in Phillipsburg. Really good friends. He's a great guy. Uh, we talk all the time. Um, he, he, he's a great friend to me. And I'm telling you, everything, every time that I have a conversation with him about spiritual things and the things that he can't explain, he simply answers, it's a mystery, brother. I've asked him about Consubstantiation. Say, brother, how, how, how can you believe that something miraculous takes place whereby the body and blood of Jesus are actually present? I don't know, brother. It's a mystery. Again, unbiblical and even absurd view. The third view 
uh, isn't as popular today as it was during the Reformation. Uh, a man named Yorick Zwingli, he's one of the original reformers along with Martin Luther, he taught that the Lord's Supper was just a memorial meal. There's no, no presence of Christ, no physical presence of Christ. There's no spiritual presence of Christ. There's no grace present for those who take this meal. It's Christians simply remember what Jesus did and, and what he'd done for them back 2,000 years ago on the cross, and that's it. According to Zwingli, the Lord's Supper is past grace. It's not present grace, and it's not future grace for his church. The final view is the view that John Calvin made popular, and it's the view that I believe the Bible teaches. It's the same view that the Reformed Confessions teach. According to John Calvin, Christ is not physically present, but through his spirit, Christ is spiritually present. The omnipresence of Jesus' divine nature is with us. And so when we take the bread and we take the cup, the Holy Spirit ministers to our souls. Uh, the, the faith that we once had is uh, confirmed. Uh, it is strengthened. God's grace is present with us as we participate in the Lord's Supper. And so we believe that the Lord's Supper is an ordinary means of God's grace where he communicates by the Spirit of Christ. He communicates the truth of the gospel. He communicates the assurance of the gospel. He communicates the assurance of salvation. He communicates the perseverance of the saints from falling away. And that's the proper view of the Lord's Supper. And if you hold to that view, that the Lord's Supper is an ordinary means of grace, that when we take the Lord's Supper on the Lord's Day, the Holy Spirit of Christ is present with us, and he's ministering to our hearts. He's communicating God's grace to us. Our faith is being strengthened. We are given a greater assurance of our salvation, and we are fortified so that we hang on and we don't lose our faith. If you believe that about the Lord's Supper, why are you not taking it weekly? Why are we robbing each other of these graces, right? We believe prayer is an ordinary means of grace. When, when we pray, doesn't God communicate to us through his Holy Spirit, his grace? Scripture, when we read and study the scripture, don't we believe that God is speaking to our heart? Yeah. Why would you deny? You would never deny those. Don't we do that all the time? So why does the Lord's Supper suffer? Why do we only take the Lord's Supper quarterly or, or once a month? If, if we preach and we pray on the Lord's day and we believe God communicates his grace through those two things, why not take the Lord's Supper? Why do we neglect that? Anyway, thank you for listening uh, to our examination of baptism and the Lord's Supper the last two weeks. Um, next week, uh, we will begin to address the afterlife. We'll talk about the, the state of humanity after death, uh, the wicked, the, the believer, where do they go? Um, what, what does that place they go consist of? And then we'll also talk um, about the, the last things that take place. So eschatology the next two weeks.
Have a good week.